Good morning, everyone. Please join us with number 90. Oh, worship the King, all glorious above. Call to worship this morning is Psalm 101. I will sing of mercy and judgment unto thee, O Lord, will I sing. I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. O when wilt thou come unto me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set no wicked thing before mine eye. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. A fraud heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person whose privily slandered his neighbor. Him will I cut off. Him that hath a high look and a proud heart will not I suffer. Mine eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land that they may dwell with me. He that walketh in a perfect way, he shall serve me. He that worketh the sea shall not dwell within my house. He that telleth lies shall not tarry in my sight. I will early destroy all the wicked of the land, that I might cut off all wicked doers from the city of the Lord. Amen. Please uh, stand and join in our opening hymn, number 17, Great is Thy Faithfulness. No. 
sing of your steadfast love, O Lord, forever. With my mouth, I proclaim your faithfulness to all generations. I declare that your steadfast love is established forever. Your faithfulness is as firm as the heavens. Uh, Please be seated. If you would go to your bulletin, uh, we're going to be reading from Psalm 51 in the bulletin insert. We are going to be praying. uh, We're going to pray a confession, prayer of confession, found in the bulletin. Let's go to the Lord. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inward parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressions your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Amen. Allie will now read uh, the scripture reading of Obadiah. Scripture reading this morning is Obadiah. The vision of Obadiah. Thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a rumor from the Lord, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen. Thou art greatly despised. 
The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee, thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. If thieves came to thee, if robbers by night, how art thou cut off? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? How are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? All the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that eat thy bread have laid a wound under thee. There is none understanding in him. Shall I not in that day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men of Edom, and understanding out of the mount of Esau? And thy mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed to the end that every one of the mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter." For thy violence against thy brother Jacob's shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. In the day that thou stoodest on the other side, in the day that the stranger carried away captive his forces, and foreigners entered into his gates, and cast lots upon Jerusalem, even thou wast as one of them. But thou shouldest not have looked on the day of thy brother in the day that he became a stranger. Neither shouldest thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Neither shouldest thou have spoken proudly in the day of distress. Thou shouldest not have entered into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Yea, thou shouldest not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of calamity. Neither shouldest thou have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. Neither shouldest thou have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done upon thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. For as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble. And they shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord hath spoken it. And they of the south shall possess the mount of Esau, and they of the plain the Philistines, and they shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the captivity of this host of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites, even unto Zarephath, and the captivity of Jerusalem, which in Seraphid, shall possess the cities of the south. And saviors shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Okay. Um, Allie, I hope you have a good nap after reading that, so thank you so much for that. <laughs> yes. I almost said a good scotch, but I don't know what your humor is here, so I decided, okay, I decided not to. Don't know. My Presbyterian friends would get that. So, uh, yes, we are going to be uh, doing a pastoral prayer. I wanted to see if anybody had any prayer requests before I pray. Um, keep my wife in my prayer, in your all's prayers. She's having a hard time walking. She's had pelvis issues since Hannah was born, our youngest, and she is having a flare-up 
and she actually is having a really hard time. She's been on the couch um, all day, and she's just really struggling. So if you all remember Bethany, keep her in your prayers, if you all would. Um, I really appreciate that. She's watching live, so hopefully, <laughs> yeah. My friend Belle. Belle. Okay. Bell okay. That work. Any other prayer requests? Thank you for the prayer last week for Lori. Um, oh. She did make it through heart surgery and came out of our CD and hanging in there. Great. Absolutely. Okay, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we will end with the Lord's Prayer. All right. Heavenly Father, thank you so much just for your people. Uh, Thank you for your saving grace. We thank you that you are a holy God, although when we hear that, we immediately go to a place of fear. And yet, Lord, we adore you, mainly because you have instilled in us your Holy Spirit not for anything that we have done, but simply on the work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We adore you, Father. We humbly come before you and we confess our sins corporately and individually. We confess our sins of how we've neglected you. We confess our sins of pride. We've confessed our sins of aloofness and as well as our sins of indifference. Father, we pray that you would hear the cries of your people now. We pray for Belle at her position at work, that you would help her, um, that you would encourage her and uh, give her uh, strength as she uh, takes on this, this new position. We just pray for her, for wisdom and your guidance, Lord. We thank you for Lori and her health, that, uh, that our prayers are answered. We pray also that you would uh, just... Continue to heal her as she gets out of surgery. I also just pray for my wife, uh, Bethany, as she continues to grow just uh, discouraged through these pelvic issues, that she would finally find an answer and that you would please give her mercy and that you would show compassion um, to her and that you would heal her body. Um, Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for Clinton. I thank you for uh, Gary uh, having me here. Thank you for his faithfulness every every. Uh, year on how he loves your word and has persevered in his in his life to serve and glorify the life of Christ. And Lord, I thank you for all that you have done on this Sunday. And we may we continue to just rest in the Sabbath day that you've presented for us. And we pray, ending with the Lord's prayer, saying, "Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name." Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lend us the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Please turn to 16, How Great Thou Art, as we stand.
Please be seated. Thank you. I did want to add one more thing to the prayer request. If you all remember, um, the Kolarani family, uh, they live in Ipswich. They go to our church. Their 16-year-old son died uh, two days ago. Um, It was a bike accident. He was riding his bike, and he um, was going one way, and the Ford F-150 hit him, and he died instantly. So um, if you all would just remember them, his name was Benjamin, and her name, yeah, uh, K-O-R-E-L-E-N-Y, I believe, Kolerani family, if I'm pronouncing that right. Gary, I'll send the the Ipswich article. If you all could just keep that family um, in their prayers. It's the youngest son. Our hearts really go out to them. Um, So... We live in a we live in a, uh, a world with a lot of suffering, don't we? It, 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 we just have a lot of pain, and I think this book in Obadiah really speaks uh, to us because as we jump right in, we um, the Lord speaks to uh, uh, the people of Israel as they're in exile, as they're facing a lot of heartache themselves. If it's okay, let's go to the Lord and just ask Him to um, strengthen us and uh, open our hearts as we go to His go to His Word. Heavenly Father, thank you again just for your grace. Thank you for your people. We, we do lift up Kolarini family. Father, um, I just pray for 
they're uh, Benjamin's parents and um, Alex and the brother as well. Father, I just pray that you would be with them and comfort them uh, during this terrible time. And Lord, we just pray for your word. We pray that your word would go forth. I pray that I would get out of the way <laughs> and that you would shine forth um, through this message. And uh, we pray that Christ would be glorified and we pray that you would be displayed this morning. Amen. So uh, Obadiah is a, uh, it's a, it's a really kind of a f- fascinating book. It's the first time I've ever preached on it and uh, Decided just to preach on the whole thing, but I won't. <laughs> it won't keep you too long. It's actually the shortest book in the Hebrew Bible. If you're having a hard time finding it, I did last week. It's um, right before Jonah. It's a good reminder. <laughs> so it's very easy to miss. Uh, Obadiah uh, actually means servant of the Lord. It's a common one in ancient Israel, and um, it says, "I said of the shortest book in the Bible, only containing uh, verse numbers." And um, Despite our lack of information, uh, Obadiah's family background or where we lived, um, Obadiah is, describes really a prophecy, a vision, the vision of Obadiah. And what he's doing in this is that he is, uh, he is receiving a revelatory word from God to talk about this, this country called Edom. And he has a lot to say. Um, it's more than mere his human sight, though. It's a visionary experience, and he has this divine revelation. And the prophet actually heard. He actually heard from Yahweh himself. And he has something to say. And he has some very harsh words uh, to say to this country of the Edomites. Uh, Edomites were a country that came from Esau. You might remember Esau. He was a twin brother from uh, Jacob. And the Edomites were often uh, pretty hostile to the Israelites. Uh, they, but in later years, they weren't often quite at war with the Israelites. They not like the Philistines or the Babylonians or the Assyrians. And in fact, the Edomites were actually kind of left alone, um, while Israel prospered as a nation. They were mentioned here and there, but as Israel fell apart, um, through idolatry and Israel was divided, eventually it was cast aside by Assyria as well as Babylon, um, they started to kind of gloat while this was all going on. They were related in blood, uh, but they were not related in faith. And Edom was quite indifferent while this was going on, while they were being plundered away. They lived very high on these kind of rocks, and you almost get a sense that they looked down uh, as Israel was cast off. And God remembers this, and God actually remembers the indifference and even calls them violent for doing this thing. Um, And he brings judgment upon its head. And Edom has a real sense of pride, real sense of pride here, and the the pride that they've fallen into on nobody can really touch us. We're totally protected. We're fine. Is the very pride that actually betrays them? Uh, Edom really believed that their mountain fortress made their land uh, uh, just basically impregnable. Uh, they have, but they were not actually reliant on God's power, as we will see, and God will actually bring them down. It's a, it's a hard book. It's a hard book to read, but there's actually a lot of promises here as well as we consider uh, what was actually going on. Uh, the main theme that I want you to remember, though, is that God remembers those who have plundered and stood aloof from his people. Um, he remembers those. He remembers what happens. He also, uh, the people of Israel, even though they are in discipline, they're getting God's discipline as, the, as this book is spoken. <laughs> um, God still remembers them. Um, He remembers them, and he's going to promise to bring them into the land of their enemies, as well as his kingdom. Not because of anything that they did, but simply out of his covenant mercy. So hopefully we can learn from that ourselves. And there are three things that I really want to look at this morning. Number one, I want to look at the pride of Edom. Number two, I want to look at the judgment of God, how it's complete, and how it also remembers, and what he remembers. And number three, I'm going to be looking at the turning of the tables the turning of the tables of the day of the Lord, um, that the deeds shall return on their head. Number one, let's look at the pride of Edom, though. In the first few verses, we see the vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We heard a rumor from the Lord and a messenger from the nations have been sent, saying, Rise, let us revolt against her in a battle. Behold, I'll make you small amongst the nations, and you shall be seen as very despicable. 
The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who dwell in the cleft of the rock and your lofty seat, saying in your heart, who shall bring me down to the ground? The book starts with a rumor, and Obadiah tells us how a messenger has been sent to the nations, saying, all the nations, really, not just to Edom, rise. There's a battle that's about to be occurred. It's almost like he's blowing a horn, getting everyone ready. It also talks about this judgment that's going to come to Edom. We have to ask why. Why Edom? Why, why not the Philistines? Why not Babylon? Edom, as I said, is, seems like an irrelevant country. Many of the battles that Israel fought in the Old Testament were much more hostile nations, as Edom kind of left Hebrews alone. As I already said, Edom was a descendant of Esau, Jacob's brother. When the Hebrews left Egypt under Moses, Edom, Edomites actually denied Israel the passage to their land. There was no war, but they just basically said no. It made it a lot harder for them to get through. Um, Moses avoided battle with the army, took a lengthy route. Not a lot of battles, but more like the relationship between Jacob and Esau, which was avoidance, avoidance or indifference. But as I said, the time this was going on, maybe around 844 BC, Jerusalem was attacked, Philistines, Edomites, through their aloofness and indifference that actually felt good about the disaster. They took proud pride in the disaster. Much like when you go to the coffee shop down the street and you hear about the churches falling apart and you talk to your friend and he says, well, they kind of deserve it because of all the stuff that's going on in the church today. People actually even say this today. People actually take pride in the fact that churches are actually falling apart because of how judgmental they are. Their own capital in Edom was Selah, which is also, or Petra, which is literally saying rock literally carved into a rock and could only be entered in by a narrow cannon easy to defend. They were high above everyone else, which actually was very, very powerful in those days. They had quite the advantage. They could see anyone coming and immediately defend themselves. But the pride of their heart, God says, this pride that they've been building for hundreds of years starts to deceive them. They live in this cluster of the rocks, and they make their home on the heights. And you say to yourself right there, who can bring me down to the ground? Now, how long have you been hearing that same question? Who can bring me down to the ground? This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say? <laughs> or it also talks about the Tower of Babel. Who can bring us? Let's build a tower to the heavens. This is a common theme of pride. Pride in their heart is really the condemnation, something internal in Edom, in Edom. They felt protected on the high ground, glorified in their protection, asking, who can bring me down? How can I be stopped? Their sin was not that they persecuted Israel. It's that when Israel was persecuted, they rejoiced while hiding in a protected barrier. It's much like sometimes when people will actually rejoice in the fact that you may be falling apart or the church may be falling apart while they're hiding in their very successful company. Edom's problem, though, was really pride and contempt. Tricked them into believing that they were self-sufficient, which gave them a false hope in being secure without, um, without God's promises. And God knew that the people of Edom thought of themselves as reflected in their haughty boast. Who can bring me to the, down to the ground? No one was likely their answer. Now, they might have had like false humility here and there, but they lived their lives overly comfortable. The nation thought no one could conquer them, but, but God vowed to bring them down. One commentary says, drunk on pride and deceived by a false sense of security, Edom will tumble from its height and become an object of derision among the nations. God is in the business often of doing this. We even see this in Esther, of sometimes actually bringing countries or even bringing leaders very, 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 very high, or in the book of Daniel, many, many times, or Pharaoh. I keep thinking of all these examples. Bring him to the very top and then casting them down so that he can be glorified. He's been doing that literally for thousands and thousands of years. As I've already said, the passage also reminds us of the Tower of Babel and the sin of even the highest angel. Building their nest in the highest place, God will cause them to go down from there. Edom with a, he also compares Edom with, a, with an eagle, a bird no, known to soar so high in the heaven 
As such, from lofty heights, the eagle customarily launched deadly attacks on his victims below. The other thing, too, here that we should understand is that according to biblical view, to dwell in the heavens, what Edom is really saying, just to sit there and dwell, is really to assume that they've attained some type of divine status. Because most of the countries there, they would actually live here and interact with a lot of their neighbors. It was a real sense of, I have contained some type of deity. And yet Yahweh, who is always higher, brooks no rivals. It's not so much that the city itself, just because it's higher, that therefore it's a sinful city. But it really is a sense of Edom wanting to go to the very highest place to almost compete with God. You hear a lot of Tower of Babel story that's in this story. They wanted to ascend to the highest places. But Yahweh brings him down. And even if Edom could rest among the stars, Edom would still not dwell beyond the reach of Yahweh. The other thing too here is that it throws us off that even though we don't see anything physical here, I want to talk a little bit about contempt as well. If I can apply, contempt is a very interesting emotion that has decimated a lot of communities. It's even decimated a lot of marriages. Um, John Gottman, who's a marriage counselor that I follow quite a bit, says that the number one reason why people divorce is not because of fighting, it's not because of affairs, it's not because of finances, believe it or not. The number one reason is actually contempt. When he or she looks upon the partner and they look down upon their personality as if they have nothing to offer. I could always sense when a couple is coming into the room when she or he sees the other with a sense of derision, the marriage is likely in shambles already right there because that's the same emotion as disgust. And if I'm disgusted with you, there's very little way for you to ever get back on equal terms. It's a very powerful emotion. It's actually such a powerful emotion that could actually, um, it's, it's, it's so dangerous and destructive um, that it's, 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 actually impossible to resolve any type of problem when you're in a relationship with that person. In fact, research has even found that couples who are contemptuous of each other are more likely to suffer from infectious, um, infectious illness, such as colds, the flu, than couples who are not contemptuous. In fact, contempt can actually kill you by 15 years in your own life. It's the biggest poison in all relationships. We cannot emphasize that enough. Contempt destroys psychological, emotional, and even your physical health is affected by bitterness. And if you've ever been in a relationship where that was there, you actually felt unhealthy. That's real. And just imagine that, that Edom right here, that is literally what they gave Israel. So don't be deceived. We should not be deceived that just because they weren't physically attacking Israel, that they weren't causing harm. They actually really were significant amount of harm. And God remembers this, which leads to my second point, that there's a judgment of God, and it's complete, and it's final. I'm way too compassionate. I don't know about you, but I'm a therapist. I I let people get away with a lot of stuff. I really do. Even when somebody does something that is really, you know, that is very, very bad, um, I'm easily, I'm easy to forgive. I bring this up because in our finite sense of judgment, we often forget and don't actually take sin seriously, whether we commit it or other people commit it against us. We either avoid it, we quickly forgive without restoration, put it under the rug, let's not talk about it, or nonchalantly refuse to address this. But God in this passage is not this way. In fact, his judgment is really complete. It's to be remembered, which brings a sense of fear. And God even makes a comparison here. He says, if you compare me with thieves and grape gatherers, the thief will just kind of come in, take what he needs and leave. The grape gatherer will take some grapes. He'll leave. He'll leave the, you know, maybe leave some other fruit. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be like the thief. I'm not going to be like the grape gatherer. I'm actually going to come and take the whole thing. And same with them. I am not like them. And Esau here is a reference to his relationship with with Jacob that he's despised his birthright. I'm taking the whole right here. But how does God bring this judgment? How is he going to do this? Well, he's going to do it very subtly. 
In verses uh, four through six, he says, I'm going to take away your wisdom and I'm going to take away your understanding. When people are unable to tell their left from their right or what is right in their own eyes, what do they do? They become fools. In fact, the manifestation of God's wrath is not fire and brimstone often in the Bible. In Romans 1, it's when God takes away his presence and lets people do whatever they want to do. That's actually the manifestation of God's wrath. If you want to experience God's wrath, he just doesn't talk to you anymore, and he just lets you be. It's the scariest place in the presence of God to to let him do that. It also shows that he's fully just because it's we that are making the mistakes because God is the one that gives wisdom and knowledge. And when he, quote, gives us over, we lose our wisdom and understanding, and it's on very fragile ground. Without talking too much about culture, but you see that. You see that through culture. Uh, there, there, is, there is no wisdom and very little wisdom and understanding anymore, whether it has to do with marriage, whether it has to do with gender roles, whether it has to do with sexuality, whether it has to do with defunding the police, you know, whatever it is. A lot of stuff that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Totally nonsensical. And yet when God removes his wrath, here you go. We make things that are just completely erratic. That's fragile ground. And so this literary motif, it really does apply to Edom since Edom was actually, at the time, notable for his wisdom. Job actually came from the land of Uz, which is probably connected to southern Edom. Um, Agar, Agar in Proverbs 30, Lemuel, Proverbs 31, they're actually from Northern Arabia, which is also Edom. Edom's wisdom is actually mentioned several times in the Bible, several times in a good way. In a, even in the times of Muhammad, wisdom that served Edom's national security, other political and diplomatic acumen goes on later. But what God says is that I'm going to remove that. And the way I'm going to remove that is I'm going to have your friends and the very people that you most trust deceive you. The people that they most trust will turn their backs on them. And the nation itself will actually be destroyed from within. God doesn't actually have to work hard to destroy a whole nation. It's easy. Just cause division from the inside. Summarized Abraham Lincoln. I don't think he actually said this. It's a summary, though, that America will never be destroyed from outside. If we lose our freedoms, it'll be because we have destroyed ourselves from within. And that's likely what's going to happen, right? Every great nation, this is exactly how it became destroyed, got, was destroyed. So this is, this is what God does. It's not fire, brimstone, all this other stuff, war. It's just like he removes and lets them destroy themselves. And the judgment here, there is every man will be slaughtered in verse 10. From the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and cut you off forever. There's an exhaustive and final decree. Every man will be slaughtered and that from the violence done to Jacob, shame shall cover them and cut them off. What is this violence? What do you mean violence? Why is he bringing that up? Why is he bringing up violence? Again, as I said, Edom was aloof. Edom was just kind of doing their own thing. But in this verse, it actually equates an attitude of indifference. Violence and indifference are the same thing in this verse. Because while Jerusalem was being plundered, they sat there. They didn't really do anything about it. We have to really let that sink in because persecution is not just lashes. It's not just holding somebody at gunpoint. It's not just putting people in prison. That's what we often think of persecution. Persecution in this verse, the violence is other people plundered me and you looked the other way. While enemies were entering the gate of Jerusalem, you sat and you did nothing and just kind of, yeah, he deserves it. You were aloof and watched it happen. Do not think that God looks past this problem. In the book of Revelation, cowards are at the front of the line with murderers and rapists. Cowards. Cowards. Some of you have maybe faced the passive problem of indifference. Um, 
The indictment of against Edom pictures a sense of just non-involvement. Stand opposite, or maybe stand, quote, aloof. Um, stood in opposition. Edom acted like Babylon, an enemy, not like a brother. Help was needed because strangers were literally carrying off the wealth of Jerusalem, and Edom did not lift one finger to help. This actually shows the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, too. Sodom and Gomorrah, some people think it was sexual immorality. That was one part of the problem, but according to Ezekiel, it was actually they didn't lift one finger to help the poor. Their behavior showed that they were on the side of their brother's enemy, refusing to come to the aid of someone who is in need. They're also waiting for Israel to fall. Edom acted like buzzards circling on a dying animal, waiting until Babylon suddenly defeated. And then they just kind of went in there and took pillage. As I already said, they gloated over their misfortune or rejoiced. And God does not offer an excuse like we do outside the covenant. We're much more, we're so quick to excuse people for rejoicing over the church's failures. In this passage, God's judgment is coming because of that gloat. But he also says these eight prohibitions, these eight prohibitions of what they kept doing over and over and over again. You should not look down on your brother, and you did. You should not rejoice over the people of Israel, and you did. You should not boast so much, and you do. You should not march through the gates of my people, and you did. You should not look down with them in their calamity, and you did. You should not seize their wealth, and you did. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut their fugitives, and you did. And you should not hand over their survivors. I want to talk a little bit about aloofness here. Because it was not the act, but those who knew about the act and did nothing. It's no small thing to become, commit violence against God, the people of God in this kind of way. Imprecatory psalms really come to play because God hears the persecution that you may be facing right now. God is angry with it, with you, and you can go to him. God covers a whole people, a whole people here with shame and cuts them off as from, from his covenant because they've committed a violence against his people. It is no small thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Jesus even says that if you call one of the littlest ones, cause, cause them to offense, it's better for a millstone to be tanked around your ankle and you, for you to be thrown into the sea. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. We know that. But he will, he will condemn those who commit violence against his people in this way. And we should pray for the church worldwide. We should also pray for the church to persevere. We should also pray for the persecutors that they turn to the living God and not face him. I will say this. I actually have trauma uh, victims in my practice. They often tell me, you know, Peter, it, was never, it wasn't, the, it wasn't the, the person that committed the trauma that I had the hardest time getting over. It were the people that knew about the trauma and did nothing to help me. And that's very true, whether it's church trauma, whether it's family trauma. It wasn't even so much the act. As bad as that act was, they've always told me it was the people that knew about it and just stood back and watched it occur. And that's what God's talking about, the violence here. But finally, three, my third point, there's going to be a turning of the tables. Your deeds shall return on your head. That's the turning of the tables. Because the day of the Lord, in verse 15, is coming upon all the nations as you have done. It shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your head. As you have drunk my holy mountain, all the nations will continually drink. I can't apologize for this verse, nor will I. <laughs> you can't. Because what it's talking about here is the day of the Lord. But it's also a remedy to wake you up here. Because are you ready to have every deed that you've done put back on your head? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> None of us are. None of us are. It's also why Paul will ask, who can stand before the living God in the day of judgment? Why? Because the law condemns us. The deeds we have done will return upon us. This is talking about the wine cup of God's wrath. All nations are going to drink it continually as though 
They've never been. They've never been. It's an apocalyptic verse of all nations, and not just Edom. Edom is the paradigm of all nations. Edom drank in rejoicing at God's Israel's suffering, so she will drink continually, not in this time of rejoicing, but from God's wrath. It's a sign for all. It's a warning. But there's also hope, because I want to end on hope. Because it ends on, <laughs> I want to end on hope because it ends on hope, <laughs> right? Because it talks about Mount Zion. And Mount Zion is the oppressor's plan. That is how the oppressor's plan of all these things is going to be thwarted. Because in the, gods, in the covenant, while God's people are being departed and being disciplined and being in, that they're in exile, they're coming back. They're coming back. And he even says that there will be the fire of judgment as Revelation talks about, that we'll even judge the angels. But why will we have that ability? Is it because the deeds have been done are so great and God's going to reward us about how good we were? No. It's because the deed was done through the life of Christ and through his death and through his burial and resurrection that we have his imputed righteousness. And that's it. And that's the difference between us and the Edomites. (laughs) That's it. That's it. And that's why we need that covering. Because Israel, the house of Jacob, will also occupy her possessions. We have this inheritance. We have this promised land. But it's because of his covenant. Because of his covenant. This verse is a climax of the hope for God's people. Their desperate state will be righted and the benefits of the covenant with God will be again enjoyed. They will be saved. The restoration of the people took place with the rebuilding of the holy place in the temple of Jerusalem. But I think he was talking about much further, much, much further. Because God hears the cries of the believers, not from what they did, but because of his promise Therefore, based on that promise, we are to cry to him while we are in exile. Because we, are, we do have nations, principalities, powers wanting us to suffer. And we're not delusional in thinking that that is actually going on. But we have a God that hears us and hears our cries. And based on his covenant membership, we have Abba, Father, that we can go to. The punishment of Edom fits crime. Don't forget that. Sin is serious, which is why the death of Christ is serious, which is why his love is so much greater and so much more beautiful for you who believe. And so we have God's promises, especially in exile. Israel was in exile for turning away from the Lord. They were likely the people who felt shame. Israel felt shame. They felt cut off. Maybe you feel shame. Maybe you feel cut off from God. Shame is a very powerful cycle. And that's why I think this book is actually for you because he hasn't forgotten you. And we're going back. We're going back. And we will take comfort in the Lord's protecting hand, his power, and his attention to our cries. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you are good to us. And thank you that you hear our cries. And thank you for your son, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Uh, We are going to prepare our hearts for communion. Please turn to the hymnal 410, Uh, Cleanse Me.
and take out the communion responsive reading. I will read the light, if you could read the dark, bold. The table of bread is now to be made ready. It is the table of company with Jesus and all who love him. You who have been here often, and you who have not been here, been for a long time, and you who have tried to follow Jesus, and you who have failed. Who invites us to meet him here. Loving God, through your goodness, may we know your presence in the sharing, so that we may know your touch and presence in all things. Christ and one with each other, we offer these gifts and with them ourselves a single living act of praise. Amen. We pray for the communion. Holy Lord God, by what we do here in remembrance of Christ, we remember his perfect sacrifice on the cross and his glorious resurrection and ascension. We declare that he is Lord of all, and we prepare for his coming kingdom. We pray through you, Holy Spirit, this bread may be for us the body of Christ, and that this cup, the blood of Christ. Accept our sacrifice of praise, and as we eat and drink at his command, unite us to Christ as one body in him, and give us strength to serve you in the world. And to you, one holy and eternal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give praise and glory now and forever. Amen. Our closing song is Nothing But the Blood of Jesus on 264. No.
Nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fault I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious God's benediction. Now may the God of peace who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, make you complete in everything good so that you may do his will working among us, that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Please join us in number 415, Make Me a Servant. Servant. 